morning, everybody. Morning. It's been suggested the smell in the building this morning is a new kind of incense. So there you go. <laughs> We're in a sermon series on the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. I think I can say that because of its great theme, filled with comfort, encouragement for each and every one of us as it addresses the theme which we're calling absolute security. So every statement in this chapter somehow connects with this theme that you and I can know with absolute certainty that we belong to God now and forever. There's a wonderful summary statement of all that the Bible teaches us on the topic of assurance found in an old catechism, not a catechism, rather a uh, confession of faith that goes back to the 1640s in England. More than a hundred theologians, biblical scholars, pastors got together and over five years they completed a large catechism, a shorter catechism, which is really the basis of what we're using historically here, the New City Catechism, and then they cranked out a, uh, a confession of faith. So this is what it says, part of the summary statement on the Bible's teaching on the topic of assurance. Modern translation. Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus, who honestly love him, may in this life be assured with certainty that they are in a state of grace. This certainty is not based on the fallible hope of guesswork or probabilities. Rather, it is the infallible, the infallible assurance of faith established under the divine truth of the promises of salvation. Our problem tends to be, particularly here in our Western evangelical subculture, that we view salvation almost exclusively from a human point of view. We know that Jesus died for us, but then it's all up to us. We have to make our decision for Christ. We accept Jesus into our hearts. It's our big act of faith. And once you've made that act of faith, many would say, you're secure. That is not the basis of our security. It's not what you do, it's what God does. So throughout this chapter, the entire emphasis is looking at salvation from a God-centered point of view. So it's not what we do, it's what he does, because it's his action and his plan that guarantees the ultimate security of the child of God. Child of God. God has a plan. He's going to restore this broken world, and he's going to restore us. He has a people in mind, and nothing, no one can thwart the plan or the purpose of God from being accomplished. Now last week, we considered from the opening verses of this eighth chapter of Romans, the amazing legal change that God has accomplished on our behalf. Today, we're gonna to be looking at an equally amazing inner transformation that God has accomplished, and both are absolutely essential. Now to illustrate what God has done, I want you to look at a series of pictures. Here's the first. Now, uh, <laughs> He appears relatively normal. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, this guy has two problems. Some of you are thinking, only two? Yeah, only two. Well, two as they relate to God. Yeah. And unless God deals with these two problems, this guy is in deep weeds. So what are the problems? Well, first of all, 
he has a bad legal record, and secondly, he has a bad or corrupt inner heart. Now, it's not as though these problems are unique to him. As a matter of fact, you were born with the same two problems. All 7.9 billion people that populate planet Earth today, they have the same two problems by birth as well, as did all of the people that came before us and all of those who may follow us until the second coming of the Son of God. So, in salvation, God addresses both of these issues. So, first of all, God wipes out the bad record. How does he do that? Well, that was our topic last Sunday morning. We saw that there's this double exchange that takes place. God took this man's bad legal record and he transferred the punishment of that bad record, the entire debt to his son Jesus, who on the cross pays for his bad record. And then Jesus, we're given the, the perfect obedience of Jesus. His obedience is credited to us. So there's this double exchange he gets credited with this person's sins, and this person gets credited with Jesus' obedience. And so on the basis of that, a holy, just God can declare him to have right standing in the eyes of his law. So that was the topic last Sunday morning. But God must also address the issue of a bad, corrupt heart. He begins to do that in what is called the new birth, being born again or regenerated, that work continues. Unlike the removal of the bad record that occurs instantly, completely, permanently, the removal of the bad corrupt heart, the inner workings of our sin nature, is dealt with gradually all through the Christian life until this guy is brought home to heaven. Now, why is it important for you to know all of this? Why am I taking your time to summarize the Bible's teaching on these issues? Well, if you will take the time to examine what scripture says on who and what we are in Christ, what God has done for us, it will promote absolute security in your heart and life. And you say, okay, that's great, but what does that do for me? Well, among other things, if you know for certain that you belong to God, permanently so, you will feel loved. You will sense his acceptance. And instead of feeling anxious all of the time about the stuff of life, you experience inner peace. You know that God has your back. In addition to that, of course, you enjoy solid hope and confidence that whatever is going on in your life today, Maybe it's financial in nature. Maybe there are problems in your marriage or with the kids. Whatever it is, work-related, doesn't matter. You can know, as Paul will go on to say in this chapter, that all things work together for the ultimate good of his people, that God has his plan, and that plan is not going to be frustrated by the stuff that's going on in your life today. But then here's another thought. When we know for certain that God is on our side, I mean, it begins to transform how we see ourselves, our sense of worth, our sense of importance. All of these things get shaped. The problem is we tend to allow the culture today to dictate our sense of worth and importance. So our culture would say, you are of value as a human being if 
And then the list begins. You know, you wear the right kind of designer clothes. You get the good marks in school, the good GPA. You're wonderful in sports or in entertainment. You have amazing job. You live in the right community. All of these things would suggest, okay, now you're a person of worth and value. No, no. All of that is false. Our sense of value must come from how God sees us and really from nothing else. So one of the biggest challenges we have as Christ followers is to realize the truth about who and what we are in Jesus Christ. Well, in the passage to which we come this morning, our interchange is described in a series of very, very encouraging contrasts. But I want to bring to your attention, but before I read the passage, which is on the screen right now, we'll get to that shortly, I want you to take your sermon notes, if you're using them, and I want you to notice on the front what it says toward the top under theme. So this theme statement summarizes what the passage I'm about to read is all about, where we're going this morning. Here it is. The wonder and greatness of what it means to be a Christian become evident when we contrast what we once were with what we have become. So as I read the passage this morning, I want you to notice the series of contrasts. We're going to be talking about those. So with that in mind, if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Let's hear God's truth. So look for the contrasts. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. So let's consider the radical, inward, pervasive, moral, spiritual transformation that occurs, has occurred in your life by means of three life-changing contrasts that are in your sermon notes this morning. First of all, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is alive. Now notice again verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life. So the obvious contrast here is between death and life. The life, first of all, we live B.C., that is before Christ, is described as a living death. So physically, we were alive, our hearts were pumping blood, there was brainwave activity and all the rest of it. But spiritually speaking, we were as unresponsive to the things of God as a corpse. Yeah. Sometimes we wonder, you know, why is it that someone we really care about, maybe it's your closest friend, maybe it's one of your kids, maybe it's an adult parent, why is it that they have zero interest in spiritual matters? Well, this is answering that question. They're spiritually dead. Not almost dead, not kind of sick. This says that they're dead. We have an illustration of this that comes out of the story of Will, William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament 
um, in the 1800s, he was the man that orchestrated the major fight that led to the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. But he had a close friend who happened to be the Prime Minister, uh, William Pitt. And because Wilberforce was a Christian, he longed that his friend would become a Christ follower. So one day he invites him to come to church. Come on, let's go to church. And he says, okay, I'll go to church with you. So here they are in a church service similar to this. They're hearing the great evangelical pastor in London, Richard Cecil, preach. And Wilberforce is caught up in this. I mean, he's just amazed the joy that comes over his heart because of the truth being taught, rooted and grounded in Christ and in the gospel. And he's thinking to himself, my friend William Pitt is hearing a great sermon today. Service ends. They're not even out of the building. And William Pitt turns and says, Wilberforce, I don't have any idea what this guy is talking about. Not a clue. Well, why is that? Well, what excited Wilberforce was totally boring as far as Pitt was concerned because he was spiritually dead. And this is saying that's what you and I were like by nature. We were dead, zero interest, Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity, okay? Now elsewhere, the Bible describes it like this, Ephesians 2. As for you, he's writing to Christians, the entire church there in Ephesus, as for you, you were what, sick? No, dead. Dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Or how about what Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2.14? The person without the spirit, so that's Pitt at this point, someone who's spiritually dead, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them foolishness, and notice, cannot understand them. Well, why not? Because they are discerned only through the spirit. Now this word cannot is a word that indicates a lack of ability. So Paul is saying that the person without the spirit lacks the ability in their death-like existence to accept and understand spiritual truth. So we tell people, you know, accept Jesus into your heart. Make a decision to follow Jesus. Well, the reality is by nature they can't. Not that God prevents them, but they have absolutely zero interest in the things of God, and that was what you and I were like and to make matters worse, we didn't even care. That was the reality. Now all of this is mentioned here by the Apostle Paul primarily to show us the greatness of this inner moral transformation that has taken place in your heart and life. Because if we're not clear on what we were, we'll never realize the greatness of the change that God has accomplished. You are someone who has undergone a radical moral transformation, and it's all the result of the sovereign mercy and grace of God. So here's the other side now, the contrast. Having looked at what things were like, the other side of it, the after Christ's life, is that you are now alive to the things of God. So here you sit today. You people pray. 
You pray about stuff that's going on in your life personally. You have a desire to open up the Bible. And, and what does it mean for you? How does it apply to your life? You're concerned about honoring Christ in every dimension of your life, your relationships as a single adult, in marriage, your work, everything. You want to honor God. How in the world has all of that happened? How does that come about when you were spiritually dead? Well, since you were dead with a lack of ability to respond to these things, there can be only one explanation, and that is the new life that you have is totally a sovereign work of God. So that Paul can say, well, as he says it here, the mind governed by the flesh is death, the mind governed by the spirit is life. But then he adds this in Ephesians 2. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you have been saved. Now, the Bible uses three, I think, fascinating word pictures to describe what this life is all about. And I want to briefly, maybe not so briefly, summarize each one of these for you. First of all, the Bible uses the word picture of birth, the idea of birth. So Jesus in John chapter 3 uses this language of birth. He's in a conversation, one-on-one -on -one discussion with a very wealthy, well-educated man by the name of Nicodemus. Now we know that Nicodemus was well-educated and prosperous because he has a Greek name. The only Jews back then that had Greek names were those from the upper classes of society. So he has a Greek name, it means something like conqueror of the people, there you go. He was a key political figure in the entire country, member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, very religious, he was a Pharisee. So Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you may have all of this going for you, but you know what? You're at zero when it comes to spiritual matters. Unless you are born again, or more literally translated, born from above, you will neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. Now the emphasis there is not so much on the again part, but the direction from which this birth must come. It's, it's born from above. Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what in the world Jesus is talking about because he's spiritually dead. And so all of this certainly illustrates for us our story. I mean, it indicates to us that we can be highly churched, we can be well-educated, we can have conservative values in life, students of the Bible, and yet not be regenerate. I mean, look around right now. Go ahead and take a minute to, or a few seconds to kind of gaze who's here this morning, and you see at least some diversity in age. There's a little diversity when it comes to issues of ethnicity or race. We hope in the providence of God that that will only increase over the, the coming years. But there's some diversity represented here in backgrounds and such. But there's one thing that's true of every single person here as well as those of you that are watching online today. Unless you who are watching, unless you and you and you and you, this guy right here, unless you are born from above, you'll neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. And that's happened to you. You're regenerate as a believer. So birth is the first word picture. The second is that of creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God. Think of it like this. The same power that spoke a universe into existence out of nothing. Theologians say that God spoke ex nihilo, out of, there was nothing there. No gases, no molecules or atoms, no protons, neutrons, nothing existed but God. And God spoke a word. And there was what? This vast universe with zillions of planets and solar systems and galaxies, hundreds of thousands of light years from each other. And then there's a little speck in the midst of all of this called Earth. God spoke the word and what happened? There's life, a planet that's teeming with animal life, plant life, human life, all of this life. Where there was nothing, there's life. And in a sense, that's what Paul is asserting here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There was nothing, no interest, spiritual death. And what happened? God spoke the word of life. And so we have the picture of birth. We have the picture of creation. The third picture that's used to describe this life is that of resurrection. Romans 6.13. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So as Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul's point is you're now united to Christ. And as he was raised from death to life, the same thing has happened to you. So here we have these three word pictures. As a Christian, you are alive to the things of God. Whether you want to see it as birth, creation, resurrection, God took the initiative to give you life. The only explanation for the fact that you're here today, interested in the things of God, is this reality. So, I'm wondering, do you see yourself in this new way? And is it beginning to shape how you your sense of value and worth, that God would give you this kind of spiritual life? I think for most of us, the answer is no. We're probably not shaped significantly enough by the biblical description of who and what we are in Christ. I like the illustration that John Bunyan gives of this very point. John Bunyan was a Puritan, lived back in the 1650s and 60s, was in prison for something like 12 years for his refusal to stop preaching the gospel. So he's in jail, and while in jail, he begins to write an allegory. It wouldn't be completed until he was released from prison, but it would go on to become one of the most published books in the English language. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. I wonder if any of you have read it. If any of you? All right, a number of you have. If you're a parent, I encourage you to get it for your kids and uh, let them read it. And uh, if they're not of sufficient age to be able to read themselves, you can read it to them. The first part is the story of this man, Christian. Remember, it's an allegory. And he's on his way to the celestial city, heaven. And it describes the various issues that he encountered along the way. The second part is about his wife, Christiana, and their four boys taking the exact same journey. But at one point in that second part, Bunyan tells us about a man who was working with a muckrake. 
So here he is, he's bent over, he's looking down, he's involved in this menial task with his rake. Got the picture? Okay. What he doesn't see is that behind him and really hanging over him is this man who's holding a crown over his head. In other words, all he can see is this menial task in which he's employed. He doesn't realize his status. What is his status? He's actually a king. And that's how God wants us to see ourselves this morning. We have been given the life of God. And that will never be taken away from you. I like the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it um, in his commentary in Romans. Look at this quote. We will never realize what we are as Christians until we first realize what we were as non-Christians and what was absolutely essential before we could ever become Christians. God quickened us. He made us alive. And because God has put life into us, we are alive in Christ Jesus and in the realm of the Spirit. My prayer is that this would continue to enrich your life, giving you comfort, security, and also a sense of your value and worth. So what is a Christian? Used to be dead, now is alive to the things of God. So that's first. Secondly, the Christian is at peace. Now let's come back to verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So once again, we have another contrast between the non-Christian and the Christian. To begin with, in our BC before Christ's life, did we enjoy peace? No, not really. It was a life characterized in a word that you see on the screen, restlessness. I mean, it was pure emptiness, it was dissatisfaction. Here's how Paul describes it in verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, at enmity with God. Doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We didn't want God calling the shots, telling us what we needed to do. No, I'm in charge of my life. Leave me alone. That was our attitude. We have a picture of this in an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so, although the first 11 chapters are kind of depressing. I mean, here's a man well-educated, very capable, intelligent, trying to find satisfaction apart from God. He looks everywhere. He tries to find it in his work projects. That didn't work, so he turns to something else. He tries pleasure, sleeping around. That doesn't do it lots of other things, and the reality is he can't find it. And so phrase after phrase, almost in every chapter, you have the repeating phrase, it's all meaningless. It's nothing but meaninglessness. Restlessness, despair, emptiness, futility, dissatisfaction, that's life. Some of us live that, and we can testify to what how empty that is. But look at the other side of the contrast, the after Christ life, the mind governed by the spirit is peace. Are you beginning to see the sheer wonder and joy it is to be a Christian? You're beginning to catch on to this? I mean, God has done something amazing in your life that you now have peace. Well, what does that mean? 
Oftentimes, the concept of peace in the Bible refers to what we call objective peace. Meaning what? Meaning the war with God is over. No longer hostility, no longer enmity. Peace has been established in your relationship to God. It's Romans 5, 1 peace. Here it is. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have, and this is present tense, we have ongoing continuous peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. I want to suggest to you, in addition to that thought, that here in our text, verse 6, Paul also has in mind that our conscience is at peace. The condemning guilt is gone. The sense of shame, gone. Restlessness, gone. Augustine, the great leader of the church back in the fourth century, I think summarizes this well. Augustine was converted at the age of 32, but prior to that, life for him was restless, meaninglessness. He sought really through a number of relationships with women, mistresses, satisfaction in life, he realized ultimately the emptiness, futility of the playboy philosophy even back then. So what did he do? Well, he came to saving faith in Christ. He wrote a story about it, a book, autobiography entitled Confessions. And in it, probably the most frequently quoted statement by Augustine is this one, a prayer. You have made us for yourself, O God, O Lord. And our hearts are what? Restless, they're empty, no satisfaction until they rest in you. We had all of this guilt. Life wasn't very satisfying for any of us and we felt that we, there had to be more, it just has to be. And so we sought satisfaction maybe like Augustine or others in work projects or relationships or material gain, whatever, nothing satisfied. And now look at you. You have undergone a profound inward moral spiritual transformation resulting in a measure at least in this life of satisfaction, fulfillment, and a conscience that's at peace. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're alive when you were dead. You have peace where there was emptiness and hostility. So thirdly, the Christian is spiritually minded. So Paul now um, wants to describe the radical change that has occurred by means of two contrasting mindsets. So what's a mindset? Well, here's a homemade definition. It's a habitual or characteristic mental attitude that determines how you will interpret and respond to situations. Meaning what? Well, it's an outlook. It's a mental attitude. It's a mental state involving your beliefs, your values, dispositions to act in certain ways. And so here Paul contrasts two different kinds of mindsets. First of all, in our BC life, we had an earthly mindset. Now here's how he describes it in verses five through eight. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, sometimes this word flesh refers to your physical body. 
but not here. Here it's talking about your mental state or outlook when you were in your pre-Christian life. So flesh refers to a sin-focused, self-centered orientation that characterizes absolutely everybody until they become Christ followers. Now this doesn't mean that the mind set on the flesh can't accomplish great things. It can. Calvin in his Institutes describes this as the person outside of Christ having what he calls civic virtue, the ability to obey laws, to be kind to other people. In fact, sometimes non-Christians prove kinder than Christians, right? That can happen. And the ability of people that are outside of Christ to do very helpful things for other people. The problem is even the best that's done by the non-Christian fails to please God because it doesn't come from a heart that wants to honor him, out of love for him. So Paul says such people cannot please God. They don't have the ability to do it. And that's what you and I were like. Totally unable to change our condition. We didn't want to, but we, what we couldn't do, God did. So now in our after Christ life, we have a spiritual mindset, and Paul now describes that. Look at these verses. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So there is a spiritual mind now that we have, not in a mystical or kind of a super pious sense, but in the sense beginning to look at every area of life through the lenses of what honors God. Let me illustrate it for you. Those of you who have uh, corrective lenses, do you remember when you first put them on? You go, oh my word, look at the colors. Everything is so crisp and clear and defined. You could read road signs, you know, like a mile away and Everything was just amazing to you. I've been watching a series of short video clips that people have been posting um, through social media describing how this has happened in the lives of toddlers. Have you seen any of those uh, video clips? So here's a little, little guy, maybe not able to see or much at all, and they're being fitted with glasses for the first time ever. And, you know, the doctor wants to put them on and the child is kind of fighting it. I don't want that until they're really on and begins to look around. They see mom and dad and they see colors and everything is sharp and crisp and clear. And they just beam with joy, right? That's the sort of picture that we have here in that you begin to think about everything in life from a different focus, different perspective, different kind of mindset. How you view studies and sports and singleness and marriage, politics, music, art, science, technology. You begin, not perfectly, but you begin to do it in God-honoring ways. Now, this doesn't mean that we're, avoid, we're devoid of responsibility. No, let me explain. Seems like I'm using a lot of old illustrations today from Puritan eras and such, but let's go back again to the 1600s. Probably the foremost theologian, Valerie, was who? John Owen, you're right, okay. We named our dog after this theologian. Yeah, <laughs> that's another story. All right, so John Owen is a prominent theologian in the 1650s and 60s. 
He was the vice chancellor at Oxford University, and at one point he wrote a lengthy treatise, which is what Puritans tended to do. They wrote lengthy treatises, this one entitled On the Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded from our text. He wanted to know, okay, if we're alive to Christ, and if we're finding peace in our relationship with the Lord, what is it that our minds default to when we're not thinking of anything in particular? He said, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of times we're focused on the project at hand. You know, we're shopping, we're at work doing this project, we're doing homework, whatever it is, but that's not his, his question. He wanted to know when you're relaxed, and you're not really thinking of anything in particular, what does your mind go to? What does it tend to revert to? And Owen said that's the degree to which you are growing in, in a spiritual mindset. And so he wants us to wrestle with questions like these. When the Spirit says to you, take the path of self-denial, is there something inside you that says, ah, forget that, self-denial is for wimps. I mean, that's basically an earthly-minded response. Okay, when the Spirit of God says, endure the trial, this will be good for you. It'll make you more empathetic to others in pain. Do you say, forget that, I mean, I deserve better. That's an earthly mindset. When the Spirit of God says, you know what, you're in a conflict right now, and you're not really listening to the other person except to score points. Do you respond by saying, yeah, I guess I better start to listen to appreciate this other point of view? Or do you say, no, I don't care, I'm right? Convicting questions, right? Okay, so Paul is, seems to be saying that as we grow as Christians, we begin to develop patterns, new habits. A great deal about Christian growth is about eliminating bad habits, cultivating God-honoring habits, including thoughts about ourselves and about our world and defaulting into areas that align with scripture. So over time, maybe we're not even conscious of it, but we begin to develop new habits and it, you know, we just begin to think about everything, work and school and marriage and singleness and shopping. I mean, everything from a different God point of view. So we're defaulting into the very pattern of thought that the Holy Spirit has. The change is very gradual, to be sure, but as the Spirit works in us and shapes us in this new way, we have a different kind of mindset. So what do we do when we find ourselves slipping back into patterns that reflect an earthly mindset? What do you do? Well, you can beat yourself up and have all kinds of guilt and shame about it, or you can go back to where you began your spiritual journey, that is with an outstretched hand receiving grace, confessing the wrong, receiving forgiveness, and now with a heart filled with joy and wonder and praise and thanksgiving and adoration. So friends, there you have it. A description of the radical, pervasive, inward transformation that God is accomplishing in the life of every true, authentic Christian. And he is not going to rest until his work has been accomplished. And so may the Lord grant us understanding of these things that we might begin to appreciate the sheer wonder of what it means to be a Christian. 
how special you really are. Amazing thing that God has done in our lives by his spirit. What is a Christian? Oh, a Christian used to be dead, is alive. A Christian used to be in a state of restlessness and futility, now is at peace. Christian used to have this earthly mindset and now has a new spiritual mindset. And so may that realization promote a greater measure of assurance that you are God's now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be a Christian. When we had no interest in you, you gave us life. And now you assure us that having begun this incredible work, you're going to continue to execute that which you have started until the day that we stand before you perfect and complete. Father, may we be assured of your ongoing love and our standing in Christ to the point where we are responding with lives of joy-filled, enthusiastic worship and obedience. All for the sake of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.